and welcome to this week's podcast. This is Josh Carlson with Hilltop Community Church, and I just want to say we're really glad that you joined us today. If you're new to the church, make sure to visit us online at hilltopchurchnv.com and fill out one of the online connection cards. We'd love to get connected with you and just say hello. While you're there, you can also find out more information about the church, get connected with Bible studies, submit prayer requests, and even find other sermons on the website as well. Now, make sure that you have your coffee, have your Bible, so and your notepad ready to go, because we're about to get started with today's um, message. Okay, there it goes. It took a second to connect. We're going to be continuing in the book of Hebrews. We're looking at verses 4 through 14 in the first chapter. And before we get into that, I do want to share with you sort of a leadership update. Uh, at the church here, we have deacons and elders and staff. Uh, the process of ordering adding someone to the, the deacon board is uh, we come to the congregation and, and the same thing for the elders. We come to the congregation and we say, hey, we're looking to add some members to this leadership group. Are you aware of anybody that would be a good candidate? If you are, write their name on a slip, drop it in an offering box. If you remember, we did that about uh, five or six weeks ago and a list of names came in. Then the deacons went through that list of names and approached a few of those individuals and asked them to join the board. And one of those individuals, Jim Reed, has uh, accepted to come onto the board. So then the next step that we do is we reach out to the congregation and we say, if you know of any biblical reason that Jim should not be on the deacon board, not you don't like his haircut, but like a biblical reason that uh, you don't think Jim qualifies to be a deacon according to biblical standards, that you would um, tell us that in writing with your name. If you don't list your name, we'll just assume that we don't need to spend our time on that. Um, but if you're aware of a, a biblical reason that, that he does not match the qualifications of a deacon, we'd ask that you tell us that, and we will then have a discussion. That's just the process that we go to add somebody to leadership here at the church, um, and it's a way of including the congregation as well as the leadership structures that already exist. So that's what's going on with that. Now, moving from that into Hebrews here, if you remember last week, we did an introduction and we talked about uh, a lot of the background of the biblical passage and the books or the book that we're going to look at. And when we looked at this, we saw that it was something that was probably written before the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. It was written by somebody that really understood who Jewish people were and how they lived, how they worshiped God. It was somebody who had a really strong grasp of the Old Testament. And what they're going to do for us in the book of Hebrews is they're going to show us how Jesus is better than some major parts of Old Testament worship. And so today we're going to talk about how Jesus is better than the angels. And there were three really big pillars in Jewish worship at that point in time. Um, there was uh, a guy named Moses. Everybody really liked Moses. And we're going to hear about how Jesus is better than Moses. There were angelic um, sort of like it reached the point where everybody thought they had a guardian angel. And so they interacted with God kind of through this angel, or at least they thought they did. Um, and so they're going to show how Jesus is better than angels. And then the other one is the priesthood. The Levitical priesthood was a really big part of Jewish worship at that point in time. And so this morning is how Jesus is better than angels. And then we'll look at how he's better than Moses and how he's better than the priesthood. And then there's some warnings mixed in through that, as well as some guidance on how Christians should live in the world um, that we're a part of. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Now, as you hear that, uh, Jesus, the son exalted over angels, you might think, what are angels and why should I care? Okay, what are angels and why should I care? And um, some of you, when you think, what's an angel, maybe you just pictured your grandbaby, like immediately. You just pictured your grandbaby. And those of us who are parents, we think that's funny that you grandparents are so far removed from raising children that you've forgotten <laughs> that that little thing has a sin nature. And when it turns three, anyway. Um, <laughs> 
or maybe, maybe you didn't think of something like, maybe you thought of like, you know, you thought of your spouse, um, and, and that's just, maybe you didn't think of your spouse. Um, <laughs> Maybe uh, as, as Claire was coming off the stage, Claire is, is my niece and she was here playing the guitar, guitar singing. I said, Claire, well done and beautiful. And she said, you too. And I was like, thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so you probably didn't think of me. No, but when you think of angels, what do you think of and, and why should you care? And so what I want to do is I'll share just a little bit of what does the Bible say about angels? And so angels are created beings. They are not eternal. There is one that is eternal. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God and three persons. He has and always will existed and, no, and is the uncreated one. Angels are created beings, okay? Um, and in the Old Testament, actually, when we get an introduction to spiritual beings, God and angels, there's a singular word that's used, and it's Elohim, okay? That could be used of any spiritual being. And God is called the Elohim of the Elohim. He is the greatest spiritual being of all the spiritual beings, okay? And so they're created beings, though, and God is not. They often act as messengers for God. Uh, one of the major places that we see them act as messengers is Christmas rolls around, and here they are um, proclaiming. Uh, the, the coming of the Messiah, okay? But they act as messengers in other places. They delivered the law to Moses. God gave the law to Moses, and actually then he used angelic beings to further the law and clarify the law. Um, they are often providers. We see in multiple places in the scriptures where they provide something that is needed. They act as deliverers, uh, where maybe in the New Testament we see the apostles jailed, and an angel actually breaks them out of jail, right? Um, we see them as guides, um, giving people direction on what they should do next. They carry out wrath. We saw this in Revelation multiple times that God uses angels to carry out his righteous judgment of sin. Um, they, they make war. There are multiple places where God uses angels to make war against people. The passage there in 1 Kings is a place where an angelic, two angels kill 185,000 Assyrians. Um, and so they, they make war. Um, if you want access to these slides, again, I, I know a lot of you are jotting down notes. There's a, there's a note taker in the seat pocket in front of you, and on that there's a QR code. If you scan that, it will take you to these slides on Google. So if you want that, you can certainly have it. Um, more than angels do. They minister to God around his throne. We saw that in Revelation. We see that when Isaiah goes into the throne room. Um, we see that when Ezekiel has a vision of God's uh, chariot room, or his, his chariot that is a, his mobile throne room, so to speak. Um, angels can appear in human form. They're spiritual beings, but they have the ability to appear in human form. We see that in a couple of places. Genesis 19 is Sodom and Gomorrah, where the two angels go in to the city and appear in human form. Uh, they are accountable to God. So angels are not accountable to you or me. They're accountable to God. Uh, there are some people who think that they could actually control what angels do through certain prayers or ritual acts. But God, angels are accountable, accountable to God, not us. Uh, they're organized and ranked. And so there are different uh, elements and rankings of angelic beings. There are those that are around his throne room. There are those that act as archangels. There's actually only three angels that are named within the scriptures. Lucifer, who is a fallen angel. And then you have Michael and Gabriel. All the other angels, to which there seems to be a vast number of them, go unnamed. Um, but they are organized and ranked. They herald Jesus at his first and second coming. Their job is to announce that Jesus has arrived at his birth. And then when he returns, they will stand up and announce his return as well um, in big ways, right? Second Thessalonians talks about how uh, at Christ's return and, and gathering his church, there's something magnificent that's going to take place there. 
Um, They serve and observe believers. That's an interesting thing, that the role of angels is to serve us as followers of Jesus Christ um, and observe us. The observation that is mentioned in that passage is that they look on in awe. They look on in wonder. They, They watch what God is doing with us and they go, that is unique. Because another thing that's true about angels is that um, they had the opportunity to make a choice at one point in time. When Satan rebelled, when Lucifer rebelled against God, he took a third of the angelic beings with him. And the angelic beings had a decision to make right then and there, a one-time decision. Am I going with God? Am I staying with Christ, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Or am I going to go with the Antichrist in the manifestation of um, Lucifer fighting against God? And so they had that one-time opportunity to choose, and they do not have a mode of salvation. There is no plan of salvation for angelic beings, right? So when Christ died on the cross, he did not die for angelic beings. He died for us as human beings. And so angelic beings, their eternity is fixed, whereas you and I, we enter into the world broken, which also that that brings up another thing that you and I as human beings, um, when Adam and Eve entered the garden, they were at one with God. They were united with him. They were made in his image and there was no stain upon that image. But when they rebelled against God, then there's a, the image of God is still there, but it's broken. It's bent. It's iniquitous. It's crooked and it needs to be remade or reformed. And that's how we all enter into the world. God's plan of salvation for us that doesn't exist for the angels, and it's why they look on in wonder, is that though we are bent and broken and rebellious towards God, he offers us a manner, a plan, a mode of being saved and made right again. So the angels look on in wonder as they observe believers. They are powerful and awe-inspiring, but not to be worshiped. When we talk about angels, There's not a single instance in the New Testament that teaches us how to interact with an angel. And when you think about the teachings in scripture that would guide us to live righteous lives before God and be at one with him, and the fact that there's not a single teaching that says, hey, if you're going to talk to an angel, this is how I want you to do it kind of leads us to believe that that's not a part of how God wants us to interact with him. Uh, When we do see angelic beings in the New Testament and people offer them worship, like John offered an angel worship in in the revelation that he received from God, and the angel said, don't do that, right? In fact, if an angel were to accept worship, that would be an indication that they were demonic, right? Because fallen beings, fallen angelic beings, demons, they would gladly accept our worship. And so it's a dangerous thing to um, seek out interaction with angelic beings. Uh, Later on in the book of Hebrews, the writer says that some of us will entertain angels, but be unaware of it. In other words, their interaction with us is present, it's real, but you may or may never know that it took place, okay? And so to seek out uh, closeness with God through angelic beings is actually something that is not scriptural, all right? And we'll talk about that more as we go through this. Uh, They often make the holiness of God tangible, but they themselves are not God. And again, I mentioned in Ezekiel chapter one, Ezekiel gets a vision of God's it's literally a, like a mobile throne room that's brought down uh, for him to see, and it's on a chariot. And he sees the angelic beings, and their glory is actually sort of a reflection of what's going on inside God. So they're, they, they make his holiness tangible, but they themselves are not God. So that's a little bit about what the Bible says about angels. 
The verses we looked at last week, okay, I wanted to go through these one more time. They say, long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by prophets at different times and in different ways. So the first thing that we, re- we, re- we see about Jesus here, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So the first office that Jesus fills is that of a prophet. He makes known the will of God, right? That's what Jesus did, and he did it in a way that no other prophet had before. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purifications for sins, now he takes on the action of a priest. So he's greater than the prophets, and now he's greater than the Old Testament priesthood, because that's what they did. They made purification for sins. Now Jesus takes on the office of a priest, and then he sits down at the right hand of majesty on high. He fulfills the office of a king. And so Jesus is this amazing prophet, priest, and king, fulfilling all of those roles in ways that no one else had before. But to the Jewish mind, they would go, we've heard of prophets, priests, and kings. We know about how humans interact with us with a message from God. So, okay, maybe Jesus is the greatest of all of those things, but he kind of still just sounds like a person to me. And so there's a couple things that he draws out here. He made the universe and he's the exact expression of God's nature. So he's kind of right away saying, don't confuse Jesus with just any old human prophet, priest, or king. But then maybe you would go, okay, so he's better than all of the forms of humanity that have existed, but is he better than all the forms of spiritual beings that exist? And that's what the writer addresses next. So he became superior to angels just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. And so what he's going to do for us is he's going to show us how Jesus does what no human being can do, pay for sin and give salvation to all. And he also does what no spiritual being can do. He pays for sin and offers salvation for all. So angelic beings, they can announce this message, they can share this message, they can point to Christ, but there is no angelic being that has the capacity to save us. There is no human being, including yourself, that has the capacity to save you. We need God in order to be saved. He must act in order for us to receive salvation. Remember, we talked about salvation being three parts, justified and made right before God, sanctified and conformed to the image of his son, and then glorified a future place where there is no more sin in us. That's salvation, past, present, and future. One-time action, saving us from our sin and justifying us, ongoing action of sanctifying us and making us like his son, future action of being glorified without any sin at all, okay? Only Jesus can accomplish that for us. And so verse four, he says, so he became superior to angels because of what I just told you he can do, just as he inherited a name that is more excellent than theirs. Now you could read that and say he became superior to angels. Does that mean at one point in time that Jesus and angels were on the same level? And then he did some things, took on human form, paid for sin, rose from the dead, and then he became better than angels? There are actually several teachings in sects or cults of Christianity that would tell you that's what happened. Jesus was not God, but an angelic being that then joined us and uh, it was embodied and then did some things to attain a level of deity. That is not what the scriptures teach. Jesus always has been, always will be God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God. 
Okay, and so what this is actually bringing out for us, it's emphasizing that because of who Jesus is, he is able to accomplish what others, including angels, could not accomplish, that being our salvation. And because of Jesus's person, who he is, prophet, priest, and king, he can and has performed works unique to God alone. Again, you will not go anywhere else for salvation. There is one name under heaven by which we may be saved, and that is the name of Jesus Christ. It's not an angel. It's not a person. It's not you. It's not me. There's one name by which we can be saved, and it's Jesus Christ because he is the God-man who has paid for sin once and for all, defeated sin and death, and gives life that no one else can give. Okay? So his name or reputation is greater than that of angels. Therefore, worshiping Jesus is right and proper. Worshiping angels is not. Now, you might think, why do I need to know that? Um, I've never really even considered worshiping an angel. And hopefully you haven't. Um, But there are many ways in which that is present in our world. Okay, Uh, the new age religious movement that is happening around us right now tells you that through different mediums and places and uh, objects, you can invite the spiritual into your life and then connect with God that way. That is not at all or even remotely biblical. You could connect with a spiritual being through those mediums. I don't think it's the one you're looking for. It is not one that has your best in mind. Because it's willing to receive worship rather than point you to Jesus. And so maybe, maybe you know somebody that's involved in, the, in New Age religious movements. And so how would you interact with them on, you know, I just don't, I'm not so sure that trying to connect with God through these other mediums is the right way. In fact, he's made it really clear to us that through his word and through his son, we have direct access to the father. We have no need of another intermediary, be it uh, a saint, be it an angel, be it an object. We don't need any of those things. We go directly through the father, through what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us, right? And so, this should help you spot things that are wrong. You may not personally struggle with this, but you may reach a point in your life where you know someone who does. Or you may find yourself in a situation where you get duped into believing some of these things. And so you need to be able to spot them. Uh, which, which uh, I just wanted to remind everybody of this verse here. All scripture, for 2 Timothy 3.16 Uh, All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching what's right, for rebuking what's wrong, for correcting how to get it right, and for training in righteousness how to stay right. So this is what scripture does for us. Here's what's right. Do you have it? Here's what's wrong. Don't do it anymore. Let me correct you show you how to do it right, and let me train you how to continue to do what's right in God's eyes. That's what scripture does for us. And so in this passage that we're looking at, this is particularly talking about a mode of worship that would involve any intermediary, but in particular angels, is a wrong expression of worship. It is not a biblical expression of worship. And so he's leading his reader in this direction. Now he's going to talk about why the son is greater. For to which of his angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father. There is no angel, he never looked at Michael, never looked at Gabriel, never looked at any of them, and said, I'm going to adopt you as my son. 
And that's what this is. Psalm 2-7 is a Davidic adoption psalm. It's a psalm where God proclaims that he's going to adopt the line of David and through the line of David have his own son enter human history. Okay? Um, or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. That's a Davidic covenant promise. He made a promise to David that he will have a kingdom that is everlasting and that from David, a descendant will come, that he will have a kingdom that will never, ever, never, ever end. Okay? So he's saying, did he ever say that to an angel? No, but he did say it to his son. We got to meet his son. His name is Jesus. You should worship him, not angels. Okay, that's the point here. Again, when he brings his firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels worship him. So not only has he said things to Christ, his own son, that he has not said to angels, but the angels recognize this very thing too. They don't ask for worship. They worship Jesus right? That's their ministry is to lead others to worship Jesus. When, it, uh, when Christmas rolls around and those stories about angels proclaiming to Mary and proclaiming to, to David and proclaiming to the shepherds and all the different people that they reached out to and said, here's the Messiah, the Christ is here, let's come worship him. That, that wasn't just random events. That was God saying, I'd already told you I was going to do that in the Old Testament. Now it's happening. So when we remember Christmas, we're remembering that God's plan of salvation that he said would happen through angelic and now Announcements took place when Jesus was born, right? That's their job. They're going to do the same thing at his second coming. When Jesus returns for his church, it will be in a powerful, visible way, and angelic beings will be a part of it, okay? And about the angels, he says, so Jesus is better than them, but what does he actually say about the angels? He says he makes angels, his angels winds and his servants a fiery flame. This is from Psalm 104, verse 4. Now you read that, and you go, what does that mean? He makes them winds and fiery flames. Well, those are both phrases in the Old Testament that refer to spiritual beings. In fact, the, words, the word uh, uh, pneuma in the New Testament that we would get spirit is, is breath, right? It's, it's, it's wind, okay? And so he's saying he makes them spirits and he makes them fiery flames. They're spiritual beings that do the will of God. That's, that's their job is to do the will of God. Oftentimes that involves justice. Um, and this one, this is a little bit more of a complicated quotation, receives clarity from intertestamental writings and in particular, second Estrada verse eight or chapter eight, verses 21 and 22. Now, if you don't know what an intertestamental, intertestamental writing is, that's between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So the end of the Old Testament and the New, there were several books that were written during that time period. You have first and second Estradas, you have first and second Maccabees. Uh, those books are not considered canonical or part of the scriptures. And the reason they're not included in the canon of scripture is because they are viewed as books that have very good historical information, but do not match the character of God to the point that you would view them as inspired, okay? So we recognize that a human author, author wrote those and they provide a lot of really good historical information about what took place during that time, but they do not have the marks of inspiration that show that they are, as 2 Timothy 3.16 says, God-breathed, okay? And so they're not included in the canon. What they do for us, though, is they do teach us a lot about how Jewish people in the intertestamental period thought and the way that they approached God. And so one of the things that they do for us is that uh, they, they teach us about how they viewed angels. And like I told you earlier, there was a really strong movement at this point in time to seek interaction with God through sort of a guardian angel. 
okay? And that's kind of where that, you might, you've heard that phrase before, maybe guardian angel. That's kind of where that originated was during that time. And then it's made its way into our history through a bunch of different things that we don't have time to get into. Um, but again, I want to point out the, the idea here is that these angels, their job is to be messengers who change or adhere to what God wants them to do, right? So when you think about an angelic being and his interaction with Jesus, Jesus's interaction with an angelic being is I need you to go here and do this. And they say, got it. Not, you know, I had a better idea. No, they just, they just go and they do where they go where they're called to go and they do what they're called to do, right? Jesus says jump and they say how high. That's kind of the idea. Wish I could get there with my kids. Um, but the point here is to compare the servant-like nature of angels to the unchanging, um, eternally divine nature of the son. So Jesus, he is unchanging, eternally divine. Angels do his bidding, okay? But to the son, so he's transitioning back to Jesus, your throne, God, is forever and ever, and the scepter of your kingdom is the scepter of justice. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. This is why God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy, beyond your companions. Now this is an interesting, this is Psalm 43, and Psalm 43 was often read at uh, the wedding of a monarch. Um, and what they were doing is they were announcing that the position of the monarch was so unique and privileged because God had anointed and placed the monarch in that position, okay? And so what the author of Hebrews is doing is what was true of an ancient king by virtue of his position is now fully realized by Jesus by virtue of his unrivaled position, character, and accomplishments. See, a king had to be recognized as a king regardless of his character and accomplishments, right? The president is the president regardless of his character and his accomplishments. I recognize the authority that he holds because of the land that we live in, but I don't have to like him or what he does. I don't have to agree with his character or his actions. I recognize his authority, but, right, we get this. We have politicians. We recognize the position that they're in, but we don't necessarily have to agree with their character or their actions. Here's the thing about Jesus. His position, character, and accomplishments are flawless. There is no rival. Like, uh, there's no ballot where you go, Jesus versus so-and-so, and you're like, well, he does have these issues, like it doesn't exist. There is nobody that rivals him. His character and his accomplishments are flawless. They are perfect. They are without sin. They are always in the interest of righteousness and forgiveness and wholeness and holiness and bringing us into that relationship with him so that we would live the same way. There's nobody like him, right? That's who Jesus is. Angels are amazing ministers of God's will, but they are of no comparison to Jesus, okay? Then he says, and in the beginning, Lord, you established the earth and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like clothing and you will roll them up like a cloak and they will be changed like clothing. You are the same and your years will never end. So the last quotation here, 
Um, I think there's actually one more. This quotation is from Psalm 102, and it's emphasizing the immutability of Jesus's eternal person. Again, angelic beings went through a change, a choice. Are they going to stay with God? Or are they going to go with God? Those who decided to go against him went through a change from being holy angels of God to fallen angels of demonic oppression, right? As human beings, we went through a change in the Garden of Eden where we were in God's image without blemish, and then because of sin and rebellion, now every human that walks this earth enters it with with iniquity, with a bent nature. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ and his unchanging nature, he loves us in spite of that. He pursues us no matter what. He went to a cross to save us from our sin. He died for us out of his, because of who he is. He chose to save us, right? We blew it, he remained the same. And that's what he's drawing out here is that Jesus created it all. It's all his. He does not change. The writer of Hebrews says in 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Don't be carried away by strange teachings. And the strange teaching is to say Jesus at one point in time was not divine. Jesus at one point in time was equal to angels. Jesus now is less than angels. And you will hear teachings like this. If you get into different cults of Christianity, the first thing that happens is they degrade the person of Jesus Christ. They lower him from deity to something, something else. They make him an angel. They make him a prophet. They make him a, they make him a good teacher, right? And the same thing with Islam, the same thing with other world religions. They recognize that there's a lot of good in Jesus, but they will not recognize his deity. And the writer of Hebrews says, don't be carried away by strange teachings. Jesus Christ is God, right? Uh, the Hebrew way of saying it, remember I, I told you earlier that Elohim was the way that they would talk about spiritual beings. And when they talked about humanity, the word, the name Adam is just, it means man. And so what happens with Jesus is the Elohim becomes Adam. Elohim and man are joined and perfect. And because of that, we can receive salvation. Now to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? Is there any angel that he says, I'm going to elevate you to the place of the ruler of all? No, but he does say it to his son. Um, this quotation, this last one is from Psalm 110, and it points to the final promised victory of Jesus, the Messiah over all of his enemies. Now, the interesting thing is it says here in verse 14, are not they, talking about angels, all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who are going to inherit salvation. And so Jesus's victory will be final. We just read the book of Revelation. We, we studied that for however long that took. And one of the things that we saw in the book of Revelation was that what does God do when he pours out his wrath? He says, he gives an angel a trumpet. He gives an angel a bowl. He gives an angel a scroll. He sends an angel to do his will of carrying out wrath, his righteous hatred of sin on the earth. Now, the interesting thing is that the writer of Hebrew tells us that the reason that God did that was for the benefit of those who are going to inherit salvation. Do you remember the, the, the passage in the book of Revelation where the saints are being persecuted over and over again and they say, how long, O Lord, right? How much longer are you gonna let this happen? At what point in time are you gonna step in and act? And his answer to that is the book of Revelation. He's going to pour out his wrath on the earth for the benefit of those who need to be justified and who need to be vindicated as they went through the persecution that they received. And God's going to do that through angelic beings. Their role is to serve those who inherit salvation, but the victory belongs to Jesus and no other. And that's the key. The victory of the eradication of sin belongs to Jesus and no other. And remember, the eradication of sin has one of two ways it can go. 
You look at Jesus Christ's death on the cross and you say, his blood has paid for my sin. The consequences of sin are done once and for all because of what Jesus Christ has done. I am no longer accountable for those. I'm justified. I'm made right before God because I trust that Jesus' blood is efficacious. It has what it takes to save me from the consequences of my sin. And when he screamed out, it is finished. It is paid in full from the cross. It wasn't a, something to say. It was exactly what took place. And I know I'm right with God because of what Jesus Christ has done, right? I can be right there with God or I can reject that and I receive the consequences of my sin. And we describe that as the eternal burning lake of fire. It is a place where we forever and ever suffer the consequences of rejecting God. Those are the only two places. And so where do you want to be? Do you want to be justified and made right before your God through what Jesus Christ has done for you? Or do you want to pay for the consequences? Is it on your shoulders or is it on Jesus's cross? Where is it? I am letting Jesus take it on the cross. I'm not putting it on my shoulders. I'm not carrying it. I can't, I can't do it. I don't have what it takes to pay for it. I'm giving it to Jesus and I'm allowing his cross to do for me what I could never do for myself. I'm being justified and made right because of who he is and what he accomplished. But then when he yelled out, it is finished, he didn't say, he's finished. He has work to do in us. And so he's bringing about the the transformation, the conformity of our character to his. He's bringing about our sanctification. And then he's going to return and bring about what we would call the glorification, which is a place where there's no more sin, no more death, no more tears. It is always only perfect because God reigns in a way that he does not on this earth. The victory belongs to Jesus and no other. Jesus is the agent of creation and redemption. There is one maker and savior. His name is Jesus. So to worship through angels would be a very silly and wrong choice. Okay. So if you want to respond to this, I think the first thing we could do is we could slow down and we consider the person and work of Jesus. It's a beautiful day. Go for a walk. And as you go for your walk, just kind of think about who is Jesus? What would you say? What's, what's formulating in your mind right now? Who's Jesus? What has he done for me? Who is he and what has he done for me? What has he accomplished? What is he continuing to accomplish? And what promises am I excited about? Who is he and what has he done? And if that's who he is and that's what he's done and what he has done, what he is doing and what he will do, how does that, how should I, how should I finish this walk and live my life? How should I run the race that God has set before me? I should fix my eyes upon the author and perfecter of my faith. If that's who he is, then I should fix my eyes on him. If that's how he's changed your life, then how could you share that in an evangelistic conversation? I think we make evangelism too complicated. Here's what evangelism is. It's who Jesus is, it's what Jesus has done, and how it's transformed your life. And that's what you vocalize in a conversation. It's who Jesus is, it's what Jesus has done, and how, it's he, and it's how, and how he's transformed your life. That's evangelism. Don't overcomplicate it who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and what he's done in my life. How would you interact with someone from a religious perspective that put angels on the same level or higher than Jesus? 
How would you interact with somebody like that? You're talking to a friend who's involved in new age religion. God has something better for you. He has a much more direct way to interact with him. Uh, Maybe somebody that's involved in, in Islam. I know that's not really common in our area, but I've had conversations with people that are in Islam. And the biggest difference that you want to share in that situation is let me talk to you about how you live in fear of God and I live as his child. You live afraid of him because of his wrath. I live as his child because his wrath has been poured out on his son. Right? I'm not afraid of God. I revere him. I honor him. But he has made me his child and his son. He has made me a co-heir with his son Jesus. I'm not afraid of God. I'm at one with God. Because Jesus sat down after he made purification for my sins. And then how would you share a proper and biblical perspective on the role of angels in relationship to Jesus and the church? And so maybe you're talking to somebody and they really view um, the the role of angelic beings in their life at a level that it's just, it's it's seeking that instead of Jesus. And, And again, the scriptures remind us that if we have interactions with angels, we probably won't know it. And so to seek that interaction rather than seek interaction with Jesus, to pray to an angel instead of praying to the Father through Jesus, it's a wrong mode of interaction with God. And in a lot of ways, you're asking, you're asking an angel to accomplish what it can't do. And that's what we do with any type of false religion. We ask an agent other than Jesus to accomplish what it can't do. Save me, make me whole, whatever. It can't do it. And that may not be a major struggle for you in relationship to angelic beings, but there may be something else that you're going to for life instead of going to Jesus. And so that's what he's calling us to remember is that our relationship with God is one that is through Jesus Christ. Our connection to the Father is through his Son, and his Spirit indwells us so that we can be transformed, right? Three gods, three, three persons, one God indwelling us. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, your son Jesus has accomplished what we could not. He is greater than any prophet that's ever lived. He is greater than any priest that tried to make atonement for sin. He is higher than any king that's ever ruled on this earth. He is greater than all spiritual beings, be they angelic or demonic. He has defeated sin and death. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, one God, who has made a decision in eternity past to save us through the death and resurrection of the Son and give life to all those who believe, eternal life to all those who trust in the name of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that there's anyone here this morning that has never trusted in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, that today would be the day of their salvation and that they would share that with whoever whoever they came with or someone else here this morning. For us that have entered your family, God, we pray that you would guide us to fix our eyes on your son. Not to be distracted by other modes of worship, usually involving something that's created, 
but instead to worship the uncreated one, you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I pray these things in your Son, Jesus' name, through whom we have redemption and salvation. Amen. Thanks for tuning in and joining us today. We hope that this message encourages you to continue taking steps towards seeking and understanding God's truth. The dream is that Hilltop is a home for the growing family of God, and we're so glad that you are a part of the family.